Bonjour, bienvenue à tous et à toutes. Hello there and welcome one and all to City Breaks Paris episode 18, Buried in Paris. Possibly a slightly odd title, but the more I thought about it, the more I realised how very much there is to learn from a wander around some of the places where Parisians bury their dead, or more accurately perhaps, have buried them in the past. We can go to the Pantheon, the Pantheon, that enormous landmark of a building just up from the Luxembourg Gardens, which you can't help noticing, where some of the great and the good have been buried over the centuries. We can go to the Père Lachaise Cemetery, I believe the world's most visited cemetery, very Parisian, chock full of history, a lovely place to wander for the afternoon, definitely an interesting alternative to all those museums and galleries. But there are other slightly less well-known places too, all of which have much of interest. So I'm going to do a quick tour of the other cemeteries in Montmartre and Montparnasse, the Cimetière de Passy, so the Passy Cemetery, and last, not least, and possibly the strangest and certainly the goriest of the lot, the Picpus Cemetery, just by Place de la Nation. So, to start with the Pantheon, the Pantheon, your first question, if you've seen it at all, is probably going to be, well, what is it? Is it a church or is it a monument? And the answer is, it is kind of both, and it certainly has been both in its long and chequered history. It was certainly built originally as a church, but I've also seen it referred to as, quote, a high altar of nationalism. And it's certainly been both those things. Built by Louis XV, he laid the cornerstone himself in 1764. He wanted to show his gratitude. He'd been ill, he'd prayed for recovery, particularly to Sainte-Geneviève, and when he did get back to health, he wanted to build a church dedicated to her as an expression of his gratitude, of his piety. But it was nearing completion in the late 1780s, a date that you all know is very much linked to the revolution, and you probably also know that the revolutionaries weren't really very much into church. They damaged and destroyed lots of churches around the city, so what to do with this one? Just as they were pondering the question, in 1790, Voltaire, the philosopher and author, died. Great Republican, of course. And his friend, one Marquis de Villette, suggested that perhaps they could use this new building as a suitable resting place for Voltaire, and perhaps in the future for others like him turn it into a resting place for the great and the good of France. Here's what the Marquis said when explaining his idea. Quote, As an example to the rest of Europe, let us have the courage not to dedicate this temple to a saint. Let it become the pantheon of France. Let us install statues of our great men and lay their ashes to rest in its underground recesses. You can hear the anti-clericalism, can't you? Not only does he want to stop this from being a church, he wants it to be an example to the rest of Europe so they too could get rid of their churches. Anyway, his plan was agreed in the newly formed Assemblée, the Parliament which took shape just after the Revolution, and it was decided then to finish off the building by putting an inscription up on the pediment on the front of the building, which you can still see today, which reads, Au grands hommes, la patrie reconnaissante. A grateful nation honours its great men. They set about destroying some of the religious statuary which had been designed to go inside and replacing the artwork with more civic paintings and sculptures. But please don't think that's the end of the story because only a few years later, in 1805, the newly crowned emperor, Napoleon, decided that he would re-establish the Catholic Church in France. 
I think it was less a case of him actually being a good Catholic and more just thinking this was one of the tools he wanted at his disposal for governing the country. But anyway, at this point, the Catholic Church then reclaimed the building, restored it as a church, but decided that, OK, down in the crypt, they would leave the remains already there, and they would even keep it free for the placing of the remains of other well-known people in the future. So it's beginning this dual role. It's a church, it's also a national monument. And over the next decade or so, until the fall of the empire in 1815, 41 people, I should say 41 men, were pantheonisi, so committed to the pantheon. whole range of different people. The guidebook tells me that they were normally honoured for service to the state in, quote, the fields of arms, administration and letters. So, military heroes, politicians, great writers. Some churchmen too, cardinals. Still not actually the end of the story, though, and without getting too lost in the detail, I would like to give some idea of the way this building toed and froed along with the turbulent history of the 19th century in Paris. So after Napoleon came the Bourbons, the building is given totally back to the church. 1830 and 1848 see two revolutions. It's becoming a pantheon again. People are starting to refer to it as a temple of humanity. But at the dawn of the Second Empire in 1851, back to the church. Until 1870, when the empire collapsed because of the Paris Commune. You may remember the communards were also no religious fans. They immediately set about using the building as somewhere to store their weapons. They put their red flag right up on top over the pediment. And really, from that point on, it certainly has been more pantheon than church. This was particularly significant in 1885 on the death of Victor Hugo. Less known for his writing, of course, but secondly, very well known as an ardent Republican. His funeral was here, and it became a turning point, a moment when it really was accepted that, that was going to be the role the building would play from now on. A new emphasis on decorations which really were, quote, works of sculpture, groupings, bas-relief and statues representing the golden ages and great men of France. So, just to give some idea of the scale of the ceremonies that were conducted here, let's go back to the 10th of July, 1791, which was the date on which Voltaire's coffin was brought here. A whole two-day celebration, a funeral cortege winding its way through the city to the Pantheon, decorated with things like a model of the Bastille representing the Revolution, a sculpture of Voltaire himself, a coffer full of his greatest works, a whole lot on a nine-metre-long chariot drawn by twelve horses, an eight-hour procession through Paris, until finally his body was laid to rest in the Pantheon with the inscription, Poet, historian and philosopher, he broadened the human spirit and taught it to be free. And written as it was at the end of the 18th century, we can read into that, taught the human spirit to be free, the idea that religion was losing its grip. Equally significant and cementing the idea that the greatest Frenchman would be honoured here in this building, was the committal of the body and coffin of Jean-Jacques Rousseau into the Pantheon, which took place in October 1794, so just a couple of years after Voltaire's. It was actually 16 years after Rousseau had died, they moved his coffin here, especially. Another two-day event, starting with a coffin resting in the Tuileries Gardens, described in the guidebook as, quote, resting on a podium covered with an azure cloth sprinkled with stars. A thousand torches illuminated this moving ceremony. This was followed by an overnight vigil in the Tuileries Gardens, 
and on day two then a funeral cortege wending its way across the river and to the Pantheon, slowly and stopping for banquets en route, musical interludes to be seen by the thousands and thousands of people who turned out. Lots of symbols carried along too. The rooster, symbol of France of course, tricolore ribbons, the red, white and blue being ultra-significant just in the period after the revolution, a copy of his best-known work, The Social Contract. As I've said, the 19th century saw a lot of toing and froing between the religious and secular uses for the building, and it was Victor Hugo's funeral on the 1st of June 1885, which was really the beginning of the final phase, which we're still in when the Pantheon is the place for paying homage to someone really great who's died. Quite an event, as I might come back to in the next episode. But to summarise, a day of national mourning, the sarcophagus started off at the Arc de Triomphe and was processed all the way to the Pantheon. And then throughout the 20th century, a number of events of great national significance. To pick just one, the first person to be pantheonised after World War II was the resistance leader Jean Moulin. A ceremony over which General de Gaulle himself presided. In fact, I think it was at his suggestion that this took place at all. Another very French and very proudly French day in 1964, a massive crowd, many of them singing Le Chant des Partisans, so one of the resistance songs from 20 years earlier. As a reminder that the Pantheon is a building that can be used for political reasons, in 1981, when President Mitterrand was elected, he being the first socialist president for several decades, he, on the very first day, marked the occasion by visiting the tomb of Jean Moulin and laying a red rose there. Also pantheonised was Jean Monnet, founder of the European Community. And there was a significant date in 1995, because that was when the very first woman entered the Halls of Fame, one Marie Curie, laid to rest in fact, alongside her husband Pierre. But nevertheless, a date of some significance. Since then, there have been two other female resistance fighters honoured, and more recently, the female politician Simone Veil, Holocaust survivor and minister in the French government. So if you go to visit, you're probably going to want to get one of the maps, have a look and see which tombs you want to seek out. All of this is happening down in the basement, in the crypt, but it's worth looking around the ground floor as well. From the outside, you can admire the very Greek-looking façade with its columns. You can look at the pediment with its inscription to the great men of France. Have a quick look at the dome, which was built apparently, to rival St Peter's in Rome and St Paul's in London. And inside, then, it's absolutely chock-full of artwork, paintings, sculptures, etc. And you will notice at every turn this mix between the religious and the secular. The very first and quite enormous painting that you'll see as you go in, just as you're queuing for the ticket booth, in fact, on your left, a big picture of Saint-Denis, St Denis, headless, but carrying his own head, as the legend said he did, towards the place where eventually the Basilique de Saint-Denis, or Basilica Saint-Denis, was founded. You see lots of representations of Saint-Geneviève, patron saint of Paris, lots and lots of pictorial dedications to the Virgin Mary, a chapel for her as well. There's Clovis, the first king of France who converted to Catholicism. There's Saint-Louis. There are lots and lots of artworks representing Saint-Jeanne d'Arc, Joan of Arc. But mixed in, plenty of non-religious things too. Sculptures of scenes from the Revolution, for example. A massive World War I sculpture dedicated, quote, to heroes unknown. Pictures and sculptures of those famous 
secular heroes such as Diderot and Rousseau. A building designed in the shape of a Greek cross, so four spurs of equal length, definitely church-like in feeling, and yet not quite exactly a church, but absolutely a landmark when it comes to the history of Paris and Parisians and French people, and definitely worth a visit. However, if you fancy some outdoor visits, then there are several very well-known cemeteries in Paris, all of which have a motley collection of tombs and mausoleums and chapels and memorabilia, ranging from the moss-covered to the disturbingly new. I would say each of them is definitely worth a wonder. The writers Judy Culberton and Tom Randall wrote about Parisian cemeteries in general in 1986, and they put it like this. Nothing illustrates the slender line between life and death so well as the cemeteries of Paris. Stone figures seem to start up from their beds as if hearing a noise, or dance as if they had been turned to marble without warning. To visit these burial grounds is to be struck with wonder. I definitely think all the ones I've picked out are worth visiting, but none more so than the biggest of the lot, the one which I believe is the world's most visited cemetery, full stop, and that is the 40-hectare resting place of over a million souls, which is the Père Lachaise Cemetery. If you know anything about the writer Honoré de Balzac, you probably picture him really more of an indoor type, caffeine fueled, sitting late into the night working on his series of massive novels. And you'd be right, but actually he also said the following. I rarely go out, but when I do wander, I go to cheer myself up in Père Lachaise. And knowing that he lived in the 16th district, which is the opposite end of the city to the Père Lachaise cemetery, he must have made some effort to get there. Okay, so going back to the beginning, this was originally the burial ground for a nearby monastery, where one Père François de Lachaise, who was confessor to Louis XIV, was laid to rest, and where alongside him other monks from his monastery were also buried. It was small, it was quiet, it wasn't anywhere that people in general visited, until, in 1804, it was suddenly seen as a solution to a problem. Newly crowned, Emperor Napoleon had lots of problems to worry about, but one of them was the lack of burial space in the city. Cemeteries were filling up, and so he decided that this space here, around the grave of François de la Chaise, would be turned into the city's first garden cemetery, as he called it. Plenty of space. People could be buried there on into the future. Problem solved. In fact, it didn't take off very fast. People were reluctant to have their relatives buried in this not very well-known place. And so, in what you can only really describe as a smart marketing move, it was decided that one or two famous people, who'd been dead quite some time, would be dug up and moved there. Among this crew were the writer Molière and La Fontaine, he of fable fame, and this worked. People began to think, well, if they're buried there, perhaps there's something to it. And so it gradually became fuller and fuller until it became the city's largest cemetery. It's a popular place for tourists to go, and if you visit, you will find the graves of dozens and dozens of the 19th century's best-known writers, artists and musicians. Writers like Balzac himself, Proust, Colette, the artists Pissarro, Delacroix, Modigliani are all buried there, as is the singer Maria Callas and the composer Chopin. Although, rather gruesomely, we learn that Chopin is buried there, except for his heart, which was removed and buried in Warsaw. You can get a map at the entrance, which will show you who is where, and then you can set off a wandering 
and find the graves you want to see. Or perhaps you'll decide just to wander and see what you come across. One of the most visited tombs is the one shared by Eloise and Abelard, the lovers whose story was told in an earlier episode. Here they are, reunited, having been cruelly separated by her uncle, who didn't think much of their love affair. And you can see their large tomb with two sculpted figures of them on the top. Perhaps you want to find the grave of Madame Lamboucas, dite Edith Piaf, so the singer Edith Piaf, which more often than not you will find covered in fresh flowers. I always think hers is quite a poignant grave because she led a very up-and-down existence, massively famous, equally massive problems with alcohol, a number of tragedies in her personal life, which perhaps explained the reliance on alcohol, to the point, in fact, where when she died, the Archbishop of Paris decreed that she had led such a degenerate existence that he didn't think she should be allowed to have the right of burial. But in fact, as so often, the people of Paris had the last word because over a 100,000 of them turned up to see her laid to rest here in the cemetery. I like to think she knew that. Another very sought-out tomb is that of Oscar Wilde, where you will almost certainly find a clutch of visitors, a number of whom leave a single red rose, which is quite touching. Less lovely, in my humble opinion, are the lipstick kisses that people insist on scrawling over it. In fact, this has been such a problem that they've erected glass screens around the monument to try and protect it. And there's a pleading little sign saying, could you not do that? Because Oscar Wilde's descendants are still paying regularly to have the unwanted graffiti removed. I think quite a good strategy is to choose two or three well-known graves that you want to see and then just wander between them. But en route, you will certainly find some interesting hints about so many of the very ordinary people also buried here. Perhaps you'll see a Star of David or a little Arabic script or find a few well-chosen words and you will certainly notice the ever-changing array of trinkets and balloons and little candles which people leave on the graves. At the far end of the cemetery you'll find something called the Mur des Fédérés kept in memory of a dreadful scene of mass murder which played out here in this very cemetery in 1871. A large number of Paris communards had taken refuge here and along came the city guards to capture them. They chased them through the tombstones, killing many of them, capturing others, and lining them up against this wall to be shot. In the end, 147 bodies dumped into a mass grave. And ever since, the Mur des Fédérés has been kept as a memorial. You can still see the bullet holes. You'll often find that flowers or little notes have been left, and every year on the anniversary of the atrocity, the 28th of May, a ceremony is held. More horror that's remembered here is in World War Two, because there's a whole walkway of memorials to those deported to the various different concentration camps. You can walk along and see the words Dachau and Sachsenhausen and Bergen-Belsen and a dozen more, all with their own memorial, all different but all equally heartrending. For example, there's a sculpture of wire silhouette figures labelled À la mémoire des enfants juifs to the memory of the Jewish children assassiné par les Nazis, assassinated by the Nazis, and a reminder that what you're looking at is in fact their only sepulchre. So reminders of some of the terrible things that have happened in the past. But actually, it comes much more up to date than that. I went to look for the grave of Jim Morrison, another one that's much sought after by visitors, and just a few steps along from that, I noticed a much newer grave with little vases of flowers on it, and a photo of a beautiful young girl with long dark hair. The inscription gave her name, 
Susan Garrigue, and her age, 21, and an explanation, tué au Bataclan, killed at the Bataclan, on the 13th of November, 2015. She was a French literature student who'd gone out to the Bataclan concert hall that night and been shot dead in a terrorist attack, alongside 89 other music fans, many of them presumably no older than 21. The Père Lachaise Cemetery features in lots of fiction too. It seems to be one of those atmospheric places where it's quite good to set a mysterious meeting or a gloomy funeral scene. Here, for example, is an extract from a book called The Père Lachaise Mystery, written by Claude Isner, in which he's describing how a servant girl has arrived in a carriage with her mistress, but the mistress has got out and gone off, I think she's off to a mystery liaison, and the girl then is left in the carriage looking at her surroundings and it reads like this. The carriage entered the cemetery gates, moments ahead of a funeral cortege, and proceeded down one of the looped avenues. The rain formed a halo of light above the vast graveyard. On either side of the avenue was a succession of chapels, cenotaphs and mausoleums, adorned with plump cherubs and weeping nymphs. Among the tombs was a maze of footpaths and avenues, invaded by undergrowth, still relatively sparse in these early days of March. Sycamores, beeches, cedars and lime trees darkened an already overcast sky. So then, let's pay a quick visit to some of Paris's other cemeteries. The second biggest is the Montparnasse Cemetery, which I've already mentioned in the episode On that Quartier, where again you'll find a good scattering of very famous people, lots of them writers, as befits an area of the city which many of them made their home. So from the 19th century, for example, there's Baudelaire and Guy de Maupassant. From the 20th century, Samuel Beckett, Ionesco, and the much-visited Jean-Paul Sartre and Simon de Beauvoir. They have a joint grave, quite easy to find just inside the entrance, in fact. And from our century, Georges Walensky, very well-known cartoonist and writer, who worked for the Charlie Hebdo magazine, where you may remember there was a terrorist attack, in 2015, he was one of 12 journalists shot dead. But it's not by any means all writers. There's the composer Sanson, for example, and Serge Gainsborough. There's Alfred Dreyfus, he of the Dreyfus Affair. There's Charles Garnier, as in Opéra Garnier, and lots and lots and lots of very ordinary people, too. People don't always realise there's quite a significant cemetery up in Montmartre as well. You climb up to Sacré-Cœur and go off to the left, past some of the little squares and streets. Ten minutes walk or so, you come to Montmartre Cemetery. I saw a comparison of that and Père Lachaise in a book by the writer Daniel Alevi. He said that really Père Lachaise represents the whole of Paris, but Montmartre Cemetery is, quote, a moment of it, three or four decades, a rapid flowering of artistic Republican Paris, the Paris of Louis-Philippe, King of the French, and of Napoleon III, Emperor. Here lie the remains of Cavignac, Stendhal, the Dumas. How much spirit, courage, honour. So 19th century greats like the novelist Stendhal and Zola, although he in fact was later pantheonised. A whole range of musicians, the composers Berlioz and the female composer Lily Boulanger. Adolf Sax, inventor of the saxophone. The film director François Truffaut. And one or two people whom you will recognise as being very famous residents of Montmartre. So, for example, La Goulou, the Moulin Rouge dancer, who became very well known, not least because she was always being photographed and carrying out little postcards of herself to give out, and also because she was captured in paint 
by Toulouse-Lautrec. Both she and he are buried here. Also not terribly well known is the Passy Cemetery, four acres or so, a funeral park, in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. Nearly 300 chestnut trees, so lovely to walk round, and from which you can get views of the Seine, the Palais de Chaillot, the Trocadero Gardens, and so on. And a cemetery which was created in 1820 and became the preferred burial place for Paris aristocrats, it being in their neck of the woods on the right bank, not too far from the end of the Champs-Élysées, for example. There's a lovely Art Deco-style entrance, and here you'll find the graves of two artists who lived very much in the area, Edouard Manet and his sister-in-law, the female artist, Berthe Morisseau. Debussy is here, so is the famous parfumier, Givenchy, and even, as I read in a guidebook, quote, the last emperor of Vietnam. And to save the most macabre, possibly the most historically interesting cemetery, to last, the Picpus Cemetery. It's quite significant that it's situated just near to Place de la Nation, a large square which started life as Place du Trône, so the square of the throne, so very much royalist overtones, which became, during the revolution, Place du Trône Renversé, the square of the upturned throne. They'd tipped it over and got rid of the king. And the history of the cemetery is very much bound up with that grisly set of events. If you go to visit, you'll find an enclosure, which is actually closed off, you can't get into it, and a small cemetery next door, which you can visit. At the height of the terror, during the French Revolution, in a few short weeks between June and July of 1794, 1,300 people were guillotined in Place de la Nation. A large pit was dug here, and the decapitated bodies were thrown in together. Noblemen, nuns, grocers, soldiers, innkeepers, anybody who displeased the revolutionaries because they were too noble, or just because they didn't seem to have the right attitude. And when they filled up the first pit, they promptly dug a second and filled that too. A little bit of dignity has been restored to these poor people because there's a little chapel there on the walls of which are inscribed all their names. The nobles, the churchmen, 579 commoners, 197 women, including a story that you may have come across, 16 Carmelite nuns who were brought together to be guillotined and who arrived in a dignified procession singing hymns as they were led up to the scaffold. If that story speaks to you at all, it might be because you've seen it commemorated in a Poulon opera called The Dialogue des Carmelites, Dialogues of the Carmelites. So, apart from the enclosure, there is also a small cemetery, and the history of that is that after the revolution, there was a surviving aristocrat whose brother had been killed and buried there, and he bought the land so that it could be used as a cemetery, and his instructions were that it was to be for the relatives of those who had been guillotined, and who wished to be buried near their loved ones. This you can look round, and of course in there you'll find the names of many well-known aristocratic French families. You can see some of their coats of arms and their mottos. And perhaps the most visited tomb of the whole lot is of one Lafayette, the French aristocrat who found fame in America, where he commanded American troops in the Revolutionary War against the British. And whenever you go, if you find his grave, you will find an American flag fluttering in the wind above it, and probably a little collection of visitors from America who've come to pay him tribute. So I hope you agree that although this was a slightly odd topic for an episode, there is in fact much to be learned from the Pantheon and the cemeteries of Paris. There's history and culture everywhere you look, 
and the cemeteries are peaceful places for a wander, if you want to spend a little bit of time away from the hustle and bustle of the rest of the city. So, we're nearing the end of the Paris series now, just four episodes to go, and all of them are going to be on literary themes, starting next week with one on two of the greatest writers who were at home here in Paris, and for whom, in fact, there are museums. You can visit the houses where they lived and learn more about them and their work. And they would be Honoré de Balzac and Victor Hugo. So the episode will focus on them, a little potted biography of each, focus on the two museums, what can you see there, and, of course, also on their writing, particularly the parts which give us insights into Paris and Parisians. So I hope that you'll be able to join me for that. And for the moment, just like to thank you very much for listening today. Merci, and to wish you goodbye. Au revoir.